Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Haptics Club podcast. I'm Ashley from Titan Haptics, and I'm joined by the Haptics crew. We've got Brian from Sense Club, Eric from Razor, and Manu from Unity. The Haptics Club is a team of people that have a passion for haptics. Our goal is to raise awareness about the amazing people and tech happening in the space and foster interesting discussions on the subject. Of course, you can check out the hapticsclub.com. We've got some cool merch. So you can check out our uh, hapticsclub.com slash shop if you want to check out like a, a hat or a sweatshirt and a, and a mug. And of course, we've got a new blog, which you've really got to check out. So the hapticsclub.com slash blog. Joining us today is Danny Grant, PhD, founding partner and CCO at InnovaBot. He's got 20 years of experience, over 20 years of experience in R&D management, PhD in robotics. Um, his area of expertise includes control systems and mechatronics, robotics and haptics, and many more. And of course, um, he's an inventor with over 250 patents to his name. He's formerly the VP of research at Immersion Corporation, um, and he's a he was a lead inventor of the PlayStation DualSense controller, which is a topic that comes up every time we ask people what their favorite haptic uh, product device is. So I'm super excited to dive into that. Of course, be sure to visit thehapticsclub.com and sign up for a newsletter so you don't miss the next episode, which comes out every other week. And of course, last but not least, we would not be here without our sponsors like the Haptics Industry Forum, the Haptics Association, which was created to streamline haptic standards and adoption, foster collaboration and increase market awareness. But I've, I've talked too much. We want to talk about haptics. So let's dive right in. I'm going to hand it over to Brian. Thank you, Ashley. Danny, we're very happy to have you here today. So for the people who are listening, can you give a brief introduction about who you are and what your background in haptics is? Certainly. Uh, first, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me here. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's great to see you guys so passionate about haptics and promoting it. So it's that's great for me. Uh, you know, my background is electrical engineering. I did control systems. Uh, my PhD was actually in the development of a shape memory alloy actuator for robotic eye. So some of the subsystems, uh, you know, right from the beginning, I started in electrical engineering, but I had a fascination with mechanical engineering. So naturally gravitated to electromechanical devices. And, and of course, we all know haptics is, is exactly that with the complication of adding a human in, which, which is also exciting. Um, I did my degree at the Center for Intelligent Machines at McGill. Uh, Vincent Hayward was my, my supervisor. I think the community knows Vincent well and, and uh, you know, what a brilliant mind he is. So I had the good fortune to spend a long time with him and, and learn a lot, uh, which was great. I graduated, when I graduated, I actually joined a, a company called Haptic Technologies. It was a startup uh, here in Montreal. They were developing, um, well, the Center for Intelligent Machines was doing haptics, of course, because, because of Vincent. Uh, there was a person there trying to figure out a way to make a cost-effective pantograph for commercial applications. Uh, and I was—I remember telling a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Matthew Mather, about this guy. And he was targeting, I think, a $500 price point at the time. We were like, oh, no, we can do much better. So I talked to him about it. He went and started a company uh, with, a, with a few others uh, called Haptic Technologies. And their goal really was to build uh, a commercial pantograph for the CAD market and for the visually impaired, which was nice. Uh, we were doing good progress, um, making lots of publicity. This is like early 2000. And then as we know, Immersion IPO'd uh, just a few months before, and they showed up at our new company with a big box of patents and said, hey, do you know we patent a lot of this stuff? And we said, no, but we're willing to work together. And, and it became a, uh, an acquisition 
which was great because it then rolled into, for me, and, and immersion and haptic technologies, you know, a 20-year relationship where there's been an R&D center here in Montreal developing a lot of the uh, devices and, and haptics algorithms and other things that immersion has gone up and licensed out in the world. What a journey. Great. That's awesome. So one of the things really interesting to hear is every guest we get on the podcast, we ask, what is your favorite application of haptics? And we heard so many times the PS5 controller come by. So we were really wondering, uh, Danny, what is your favorite haptics application as the creator of that controller, or at least one of the main inventors on the team? That's an excellent question. Uh, am I allowed to talk about things that are public or not public? <laughs> um, so you can do what you want. Okay, excellent. Uh, I mean, so being at the cutting edge of, of haptics for a long time, uh, you know, we've developed a lot of internal demonstrations that have never got out into the world. Uh, and I think this will play into our, our conversation about the PlayStation 5. Uh, but there are some devices, and particularly in the VR space, that use a number of haptic modalities. And I, I think that's probably my best example for me. Uh, you know, out, out in the real world, uh, the Pantograph was a pretty amazing device. Uh, you know, the, it was the first kind of two degree of freedom uh, planar device that could create illusions. And, you know, Vincent spent a lot of time showing that you didn't necessarily need to recreate all the forces to, to, to make realism. Like one of, the, one of the best demos I saw in the very early days uh, was the work that was done to show that you could use lateral forces to create the illusion of, of going up or down. So basically there was no motion up or down. We, you know, they were testing people with a blind screen and they basically couldn't tell the difference whether they were moving over a bump or moving actually a real bump. I think uh, that was uh, the De La Torres nature paper actually. Yes. From Vincent, right. yes, the right. nature paper. Yes, that, that was exactly it. And that was great work. That was a great demo to try. I did that user test and I was like, okay, well, it's true. You can't tell the difference. So. What can we do with that? And and again, that plays too in some of the things that we've implemented in the PlayStation 5, certainly the you know, the immersion version where we've tried to use some perceptual tricks to kind of uh, limit the specifications of the motor to make it lower cost. Because as Eric will appreciate, you know, anything in consumer gaming, cost is is the number one driver. So, you know, how can you maximize your experience? Uh, with cost. And, and I, again, I think that was one of the reasons, uh, we'll probably getting the details of the PlayStation 5 a bit more, but one of the reasons I think that it was eventually successful in displacing, you know, the DualShock controller, which was something I had been trying to do for years and years and years. Uh, thanks, Andy. Uh, I think, Brian, it uh, leans in quite nicely to the second part, which is the area of expertise. So let's, we will probably try to dive in and it's great to converse, to chat with you, Danny, because it's, yeah, you, you can share and that's, that's wonderful. So we want to spend a bit of time in, on the history of the conception of the dual sense specifically. So for who doesn't know, the dual sense is a really nice controller that PlayStation uh, shipped with the PlayStation 5, which uh, showcase two uh, wideband uh, vibrotactile actuator with a usable band between, let's say, 15, 20 hertz, 10 hertz, they don't feel it, but 15, 20 hertz up to 500. And uh, the uh, implementation, what we call the adaptive trigger, which are basically there is some, I think up to one Newton or a couple of Newton of force, if I remember correctly, that basically it's a, it's a, a force controlled, uh, uh, force controlled uh, um, small 
robot that push back on your index finger, but it's compliant, which means that you can also use it to trigger your buttons. So it's uh, it's a little wonder from my perspective, this, uh, this, uh, this haptic device. And uh, I think, Danny, you had a part on designing this, uh, this or all the experience or part of the experience. I remember, I think testing a Silicon Valley virtual reality 2017, your poof, actually one of the early prototype of this. So can you tell us a little bit the story of this device, how it came to be? And I know that it was a journey of endurance on your side. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It was. Um, certainly. Uh, so lots to say in there. Uh, one thing to say off, off the top is, you know, that we did create a design that has exactly those features that, that you mentioned, Eric, with the high definition body actuators on both sides, and then the, the adaptive triggers that could engage kinesthetic senses, which, which was good. Sony, uh, you know, licensed that technology in a broad license application with, with immersion, but Sony themselves did their own design. So the Sony controller uh, certainly has uh, some differences from, from the original design, just to be clear, but the, fundamentally that's that was the interesting part. Um, so on the, with respect to the design, so, you know, I'm a gamer. I've always been a gamer. Uh, I uh, was super passionate when I first saw the iFeel mouse uh, way back in, again, early 2000, where we had a haptic mouse, you know, the cogs was a dollar. It was like, everyone's going to have one of these mice. So for various reasons, uh, there was some difficulty there. And, and I have a number of stories I could tell about that, but let's, let's save that for another time about mice. Um, but it's been a, a pretty much a career goal for me to, to, to displace the dual shock controller. So we, we spent a lot of time developing many different, uh, prototypes. And you know, one of the things at the start of the story really is about how you can uh, clearly demonstrate the value of an experience. And, and that's been kind of a mantra that I've used throughout my career is developing a haptic experience without really being cost constrained because you need to have that wow, right? If you, and as we all know, haptics is uh, multidisciplinary, you know, the actuators, the software, the firmware, the user experience, if any of these are weak, your, your overall demo is weak. So you really need to have it all together. So building this um, user experience unconstrained was kind of the, the first goal. And that's that's how it started with, with the trigger. We had done uh, button work uh, much earlier than the trigger. And uh, we used a lot of high powered Maxon motors. And, and the very first demo was exactly that two Maxon motors uh, in a game controller. And you can imagine I'm using a hundred dollar motor, how amazing the clicks and sensations and the springs and everything felt, it, it was pretty incredible. Of course, cost was a problem. So we said, okay, well, we can't use those. You know, well, how can we simplify the issue? One thing we did was look at vibration in the triggers. Uh, you know, Xbox came out with a product like that. It was interesting, but all our work showed that it was very hard to distinguish what was vibrating, the, the body, the, the, the fingers, especially when you're in, in, in the action. Uh, so we kind of moved away from that and we knew we needed to engage another uh, modality. And, and that's really where it came out that, hey, we needed to have kinesthetics. We needed to figure out a way to make it a low cost motor uh, in, to, to be adapted. Now, this is the kind of story I, I, I kind of tell about the PlayStation 5 because I think it's uh, it just explains a lot about it. The PlayStation uh, 4 controller, DualShock, interesting controller, but really when I equate it to an instrument, I equate it to a triangle. 
So you're playing an instrument, triangle well, you can hit it at different speeds, you can hit it at different intensities, and that's kind of what the PlayStation 5, uh, 4 controller was. PlayStation 5, now we have the two HD motors, so we've already increased the dynamic range considerably. Uh, we have the two triggers that are interacting with the kinesthetic sense, so you have another modality. And then you have the spatial arrangement of these things. So really my, my example is it's like a ukulele. So now it's an instrument, you can convey much more information. You can do effects where, you know, spells are building up in the body and shooting out through the fingers. You can do effects where you're, uh, you're obviously firing guns or firing bows and arrows. It's just a much richer device. And, and I think that's the reason why people like it because it has a richer expression and now developers are figuring out how to play the ukulele versus play the triangle, which is great. Uh, thanks. I mean, this was a, a nice description of the product and uh, and it goes within, but um, you mentioned a little bit that it took a relatively a long period of time, right, to arrive from the conception towards the licensing and towards the commercialization. Uh, what was the process? What kicked off? What, what at the end was the spark uh, that, uh, that, let's say, managed to say, okay, let's, this is going production, this will change the the console, it's the console gaming experience from now on from the haptics perspective. Yeah, so the endurance aspect of it uh, is also a good story because it, it really is the story that we hear about when you read about entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, I was inside of immersion, so they sometimes call it intrapreneurship, uh, but literally it started as a Skunk Works project inside the company. Uh, we, we built, uh, a team around that uh, because people like the experience and that team actually got taken apart at least twice so it really is a personal you know uh, projects need a champion and and the reason that i think that the trigger was successful again was because of the experience uh we were you know it wasn't a seven on ten experience when people tried it it was like a 10 on 10. i had people who who uh Played with the trigger for 10 minutes and then came and said, well, now I'm room for gaming. Like, so you get comments like that, you know, you know, you're kind of on the right track. So that's why we, we pushed and pushed. Uh, internally, it literally was a board member who actually felt the demo at one point and said, OK, we, we need to get this out. And, you know, there's some longer uh, private stories about how Immersion spent a lot of effort to get this out. And ultimately, it did indirectly lead into uh, Sony thinking about the design and integrating in the ps5 so that so that was great um but really you know the personal drive back to what i was saying with the experience you really need to make the experience interactive uh, as as we know and well you know some haptic experts can feel haptic devices and say oh yeah i think i can understand how this feels but until it's like in a real experience for a user where they're looking at you know a real game they're playing real things and they're interacting it, it's challenging for people to to get it uh, so that's that's the other thing I would advise anyone developing new haptic devices. You really have to think of the whole experience. You know, obviously the video, audio, the synchronization, all that is key. And uh, again, to answer your question, it really was user responses. So in the beginning, uh, you know, we invited a lot of people in to try try the trigger. Uh, at one point, I was at CES and GDC with a backpack, wandering around, just showing people the trigger. Like getting that user feedback was what I think motivated me personally to continue and push and eventually get out the door, which was great.
That's that's awesome. It's it, it's really an entrepreneurship story or intrapreneurship story because at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, it's, if someone has a has a has a baby project and he wants to bring it out to the world, and that's what actually moves mountains usually. And uh, it and I agree that user and, and the experience are the the way forward to gather you know consensus. But let's uh, let's go away from the dual sense and let's maybe share some. I mean, it's a long time that you're doing this job or right now you are doing something else, but they, are doing, they did a long time, the haptics work. work. So let's say, look about your lifelong learning or at least some high level uh, learning that you share. You already shared that haptics to be able to get traction, you need to talk about all the chain and the weakest, the things that people will notice, the weakest link. And I definitely agree with you. But let's talk about maybe some product that didn't come to market. And maybe they didn't come to market because some of these weakest link uh, were there and uh, and they couldn't go through. Can you share some uh, some of these, if you can, and some of other lessons uh, that would uh, someone innovating in haptics uh, that should take into consideration? Yeah, no, no, certainly. Um, I mean, there's some some of the standard things, obviously, uh, and again, their best practices today is is rapid prototyping, rapid iterations. Uh, you know, try to removing your assumptions as as fast as you can before you build up to a to an experience. Uh, you know, I think that's table stakes today, which is great, but it wasn't always that way. Um, there's also uh, to take a little different slant here. There's also so many other things that have nothing to do with technology <laughs> about getting your product to market. I mean, obviously, business, uh, finance, legal, all these different things is is a huge asset. Uh, Cost has stopped a lot of things, uh, to be blunt, especially in the automotive space for us. Um, you know, Immersion spent a significant amount of time developing their own custom actuators, developing their own rotary controllers, developing hybrid controller, all these different devices that just the cost point was never there. Uh, so that stopped a lot of things. Um, and, and sometimes even it's something you wouldn't even think of. Uh, and I'll give you a, a, a small story about Again, the one of the I feel mice, because uh, when Logitech launched these uh, the the mice, there was two versions. One had haptics and one didn't. And because of the higher communication bandwidth uh, with the haptic device, there was a shielded cable, USB cable, that ultimately cost too much. <laughs> and and you know Logitech looked at the sales and said, well, why are we selling this haptic mouse? We're selling this other mouse. They also launched at the same time as optical sensor technology. So there was a bit of I think consumer confusion, but there's a lot of factors that uh, have nothing to do with the technology. On the technology side, as I said, I, I think you know you need to get that wow experience. You, you need to be out, have people try your demo and just walk away with, well, I need to have that now. And and I've shown a lot of demos where I didn't have that and they didn't have success. Um, I, I think the I think and that's one of the big things is is the PlayStation Five or the adaptive trigger demos. Like it was clear right away when I showed it to users at the end experience that it was something that was big. So you need to get to that wow. Um, Let me give you a counterpoint on DualSense because uh, we are working with the creators a lot actually, uh, with, uh, with the Gotech VR and stuff, sorry, with the interruptics and stuff. And uh, if the vibro tactile is well understood, really well understood the value. People really get it. And because it's a bigger bandwidth, it goes well with audio, can code it together. Mm. It's fast, it's responsive. Uh, somehow in the, the adaptive trigger, the ramp up to actually adopt this uh, 
this new haptics technology is much less, frankly. There is way, not, not really a lot of games that integrate this. And when it's integrated, it's wonderful. But yeah. uh, as an amount of sheer number of times that it's been used, it's actually not a lot. And it seems also that, you know, competitive or at least player who don't like it, they shut it off. Um, have any feedback on this? I mean, this is, you know, mass market, super implementation. So wideband fiber tactile, thumbs up. Adaptive trigger, the jury is out, you know. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, at least a little bit my feedback. Uh, any feedback on your side? What do you think could, you know, move the triggers in the direction this is everywhere? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, again, it kind of goes back to engaging more modalities of the user. So, um, you know, Sony did their own design. They made some trade-offs, which which we knew right from the beginning. One of them was uh, about haptic transparency. So, I mean, one of the things about touch surfaces, but also in 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 the gaming world, we we felt very strongly was that the triggers when there were no haptics had to feel like the PlayStation 4 triggers. Like if they felt different, gamers would reject this right off the bat. Um, so we solved that problem by looking at uh, a trade-off of, you know, how much force do we want to have and how do we focus on the click sensation? Because the user feels the transition, right? More so than the springs. Uh, so there was a trade-off that, that had to be done there. Sony attacked it a different way uh, for those who may have taken a Sony controller apart. Uh, they actually have a, a, an engagement mechanism. So when you press on the trigger, when there's a haptic effect, you engage the, the device. When there's no haptic effect, they pull this away. So you have this haptic transparency. Um, one of the things that they sacrifice with that is now they can't do bi-directional drive. Uh, so the, and, and that was a, a major aspect, I think, of the range of things that, they, that can be done. So I think the trigger can be improved, to your point. Uh, I think the difference between uh, ERMs and high definition vibration is also, you know, astounding. So I, you know, I think that that adds a lot to it because again, it's the range of effects you can do. ERM motors, hey, I'm playing a game. I feel a quick hit. Suddenly I feel a zip afterwards, right? The high definition motors, you know, you're passing a hockey puck or you're doing something, you feel all the nuances. Uh, and, you know, the PlayStation 5, uh, demo when you when you start with the guys and you're shaking the guys like all that is just done so well with with synchronization. Um, but to answer your question, I think the trigger can be improved. I think what we want to go to or as have uh, as a goal in this space is how do I make the device have more modalities or more ways of of either touch points or different types of touch points to the user. Um, so. Kinesthetic is one, you know, skin stretch is another, uh, uh, localized vibration is a third, uh, because again, you still pretty much have the whole device. So I think there's a lot we can we can do to improve the experience. And, and I think as the devices become more instruments, so now maybe we have a 12, 12 string guitar, developers are gonna be able to do more and more with it. Um, so in summary, I think I, I love the PlayStation 5 controller. I think they made some sacrifices to to make it a product, which always happens. I think I think the experience can be even better. And I, I think as we see the technology evolve, we're, we're going to see that. Awesome, Danny. Thank you for uh, for that story. I love the metaphor of the instruments as well. So, um, yeah, your current job. Can you tell us a little bit more about InnovaBots and the things you guys are doing from uh, from day to day? Sure. So InnovaBot uh, is a good story as well. 
so I left Immersion uh, probably four years ago now and uh, started a company with some uh, friends and colleagues. Uh, Innovat really is an investment platform. So we, we have a, a VC fund that, that we announced our first close in December, which is great. We've already made a, made a few investments, which is also great. As you probably all know, it's not a great time, macro environment to be raising funds, but we're having good success. And I, I think we're having success because, you know, we're not a vanilla VC. Uh, really, the whole team is senior engineers that have been uh, in the field for 25, 30 years which is great, we have a lot of technical expertise, but our model is also different. Um, so we have a fund side called the Residence uh, Venture Cap Fund, but we also have a lab side, which is Innovabot Labs. And this is what we mean by, by our ecosystem. So the labs have, you know, we have in-house technical staff and, uh, you know, we're developing labs in HMI, robotics, AI, IoT, and advanced materials, that's kind of our goal. Right now, the HMI lab, which of course includes haptics, is, is probably our most advanced lab. Uh, but this lab is working, so the fund invests in uh, seed and series A investments. Uh, the labs works with the fund companies, of course. So now this is a kind of a win-win because the fund companies are getting uh, expertise that they normally wouldn't be able to afford, which is good. But the labs is also working with enterprise, so larger companies. Uh, and that's also an interesting arrangement because one thing that we've been pushing uh, is open innovation, this idea of collaboration. And it kind of goes back to specifically for haptics, the multidisciplinary nature of haptics, right? There, there really is a lot of different systems and it's hard to be an expert in all these systems. So we really you do need to partner. And in the open innovation context that we're promoting, you know, there's shared development, there's shared risk at the beginning, but there's also shared reward. So the labs is making money working with these companies, but hopefully when they start launching products, we're also getting a revenue stream. And then finally, the labs is also working with pre-seed companies. So this is before seed, and we're helping them to get ready for seed. And of course, if they're the right companies, then the fund can invest. The enterprise companies also are happy to see these pre-seed companies and portfolio companies. So it's, it's really an ecosystem. And uh, we developed that because it's pretty hard to raise money to build hardware. <laughs> And one of our theses was, hey, you know, we we know hardware. We we should help, you know, this community. It's particularly, uh, you know, it's Canada-based. We we do have uh, some allocation in in Europe and and United States, but we're starting off here. It's our first fund, and of course, we hope to roll this model into multiple funds. What is cool? What you're saying is that one of the reflection I'm doing here with ChatGPT or a Copilot that is out is that the cost of software will go down. And if you, the cost of software goes down, what's there? Of course, it's hardware, it's hardware and distribution. So yeah. I think that comparatively, we probably will see some more giants in the software coming up, but hopefully there will be much more, you know, because the cost will go down, so will be the price will go down. So there will probably be some more hardware, um, software enabled hardware that will come up. So hopefully the hardware business will come back into Vogue, hopefully, we'll see. Well, I mean, so, as we know for haptics, you need to have some hardware somewhere, right? That's 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 the key, and it it's, it has been one of the limiting factors in the whole development of the field, right? You get everyone who wants to do something in haptics. There's no hardware. They have to figure out how to build their own hardware. Uh, it it really is a challenge. But like, I mean, there are some trends, as you mentioned. Increased compute power is certainly one of them. Uh, the other one really is the lowering cost of the subcomponents of of haptic devices. 
Uh, you know, I've seen that over the time. Accelerometers are a good example. You know, they used to be crazy expensive. Now they're, you know, very cheap. But also, you know, back to the rapid prototyping iterations, right? Things are just accelerating faster. So I think in that aspect, identifying companies that are using these kind of trends is a technical win, right? I think they're they're going to win more than companies that are are not following these trends. And you know, we kind of look at that when we're looking at a company to invest in. You know, how savvy are they in these these areas? Thank you, uh, Danny, for that. So you already mentioned earlier that uh, when you were building, for example, the tech be behind the PS5, that having a showcase for your technology, for your innovation is very important to create this experience and to get some movement behind that idea. And I was wondering, a lot of the innovation, of course, is very technical, very mechanical, um, but in the end, you're building a haptic device. It is about perception. It's about uh, experience, emotion. When does that user experience component uh, enter mm -hmm. that innovation space within your process? Pretty, pretty early, because um, again, you need to think of the whole design. I mean, when you're building promising subsystems, as haptic experts, I think again we can extrapolate and say, okay, I, you know, hey, that feels like this. I can imagine how it would feel doing this interaction. Uh, but many times I've thought that, built the interaction, and went, okay, it didn't feel like that. So, so really, it is, uh, you know, at the forefront uh, of understanding it. And and again, I think it needs to be this complete, the complete experience to, to get it. Um, All right, wonderful. And then, yeah, I think for the end of uh, the area of expertise, we can conclude that you're a great example of a successful innovator within this haptic space. Uh, yeah, we have many different types of people listening, entrepreneurs, uh, big and small innovators. Do you have any advice for them to uh, come up with viable innovations within this haptics industry? Yes, I, and I think we we touched on a few of them, right? Uh, you know, the multidisciplinary nature, you, you can't really stay in a box in haptics. You, you do have to kind of learn about these other things. You don't have to be an expert. Uh, collaboration, I think, is the other big one. So now you need to bring the experts together at, at times, which is good. And, you know, the standard, uh, be bold, right? Uh, again, I with respect to the uh, trigger design, like it, when we started this, it was like, okay, no one's ever going to be able to pay that much money. No one's ever going to get that experience. But getting to that point where you you get the wow and you get the ten on ten is 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 pretty rewarding. So you need to be persistent. And if you feel it's a ten on ten, you're probably right. Like you need to get it out there. Thank you, Danny. That's uh, wonderful. And to close the the area of expertise, and I I love to pass to Ashley for our most popular section, which is the future of haptics. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's say the experts sometimes are well posed to do so, or sometimes they are not hungry enough to, <laughs> to, to, to actually get the future. So Ashley, this is for you. Heck yes. All right. Love this so much. And yeah, Danny, thanks so much for sharing all these tidbits and insights. Um, it's been so wonderful. But on the future side, I think I want to start with um, what do you think the future of gaming controllers is going to look like? Um, it may not be something you've worked on. It may be just like this idea, a concept in your head, and you can take it from like a either a console or VR or XR, XR kind of um, kind of frame. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and I don't think you'll be surprised by my answer. I, I think that's going to be, have more different haptic modalities. I think it's going to have more touch points. Uh, again, trying to make it as rich as as we can. 
Now, there is a trade-off between realism and you know what what we can do. Everyone here has probably tried many VR experiences. You know the the uh, video and audio are fantastic. Um, I'm a proponent that we don't necessarily need haptic realism, full haptic realism, because you know there's so much going on. You, you know your brain is trying to make patterns or sense of what incoming environment. If it's getting uh, congruent cues that I'm bumping into these things or doing these other things at the same time as seeing them, it's just a super powerful experience and, and the user becomes immersed. That said, I would like them, of course, to be to be much more uh, realistic. I think there's an interesting thing with gaming as well because um, there's a lot of focus on full hand interaction, which, which is nice, and I could see a lot of things for that. But literally with a gamepad, people are superhuman, right? Uh, you know, the way they can move the, the joysticks and, and these things around and move the character, I, I think is a much more, it, it's a better control method than if I were moving my real hands in space, just from a fatigue point of view, right? Uh, you know, I saw, I tried a demo once where somebody was on a uh, VR uh, treadmill and they were playing a soccer game and they were jumping to every guy. I'm like, okay, this guy's going to be able to play for five minutes, 10 minutes, like he's going to pass out, right? A kid or anyone can take a game pad and play 10 soccer games in a row, right? So I think that's an interesting split in how things are going to evolve. I personally don't think controllers are going to go away just because they're such a useful interface. Uh, but there will be some areas where you, you, you'll need to use your hands and get more interactive with that, whether that's gloves or, or whatnot. And I even think, uh, I mean, if I think about gaming, I think that there will be a split. I, I think, you know, I'll be playing uh, some RPG or some adventure game and, you know, 85% of the time I'm going to be using a controller and then there's probably going to be some mode where, okay, suddenly I got to use my hands for something. So I, I do think in the gaming space, it's, it's going to be a split like that, that where both will be there, but you'll still need a controller. And um, what's your take, Danny, on the... The uh, control labs who've been wrist from Meta and the associated task B, which is the you know this the wrist that has both hand tracking and haptics over this reported haptics experience. Oh, I think maybe maybe they would like to push this as a controller replacement, or in some way some of the research talk from Meta were around this uh, optionality of having the different language to interact within yourself and not having it or not having controllers. Yeah, uh, I think that's interesting. I, again, I think there's some feedback elements uh, of using the controls that people are uh, adapted to. Now that said, um, you know, touch screens was a huge thing as well. We took, we went from physical buttons to touch screens and we said, oh my goodness, we need to have our physical touch back. And you know, it's come, but there are a whole generation of kids who grew up with no touchpad haptics. And you know, they work these touchpads pretty, <laughs> touch screens pretty well. So I, th I think that uh, It'll take some time to evolve away from having something you're moving around, but I, I definitely could see that. Uh, Non-co-located haptics, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, I've done a lot of work in that area. And again, um, once you have a mental model of what's happening, it does. you don't necessarily need to have the haptic cues in the right space. You, you quickly adapt. And you know that's something I, I think is very interesting too for the future of haptics is, is how will people adapt longitudinally to these to these devices right most of the times we you know we have a gaming device or we try a demo we try it for 
two minutes or five minutes. But now if I wear this wristband for six months or two years, like how, how is that going to change the way I'm interacting and information that I'm getting from the device? We've seen these kind of um, hand tracking or like uh, haptic devices for like a wrist mounted. It could be a watch, could be some other kind of contraption for some time. And you've probably seen tons of research on it. What do you think the limiting factor is of why these haven't kind of come to fruition? Is it like the user experience isn't there? Or the technology isn't there? I Well, so there are a number of things. I, I think, again, it's a value uh, discussion. You know, what, what real value are you doing? Um, the challenge for me has always been if you have a bad actuator, there's only so much information you can transmit, right? And then so now I want to show the value of this, but I'm kind of, again, I have a triangle and I'm trying to play you a song. I can play you a song, but it's not a great song and you might not want to pay $2 for it. So I, I think that's one of the issues. And um, I mean, getting back to, to the future of haptics, I, I do think that's an area where there's a rich future and, and mostly because of the actuator subsystem. So I mean, smart materials, piezo, we've been looking at them a long time, shape memory alloys, there's been a, you know, Cambridge has done some stuff with focusing cameras and stuff. It's coming. And I, I think that's the exciting for me for the future is how well will these smart materials actually be able to create forces? And how can we make these devices have more spatial uh, authority? So it's not just about shaking the whole device or shaking the, the wearable. You really have uh, a more nuanced uh, effect. And, you know, it's hard to say, I, I, again, my PhD in 99 was shape memory alloys. When I did it, I said, it's going to take a long time for them to become a product. And then they became a product. I was like, oh, so I think there's a lot of technologies, electroactive polymers are another one. Again, they have some fundamental issues, but we zoom out 20 years, maybe some of these things are solved. And we have our little transparent, semi-transparent glove that can actually create some kinesthetic forces. And, I, you know, obviously that would be a game changer. Uh, can, I, can I be contrarian here? Uh, yes. Is, uh, I mean, when do you think haptics, you always think as interaction paradigm, right? And you always think because it's an output for an input that happened. And you also think about the interaction um, uh, interface. And uh, historically, uh, humans are terrible to adopt a new interaction interface, right? So uh, all the fuss about hand tracking in VR is not the changing of paradigm, it's using our natural uh, interaction interface, which is our hand with reality. We are still using a mouse today, even for playing and, and a keyboard, which I don't know how a keyboard is 200 years old, I don't know, since when the typing machine invented, right? <laughs> and the mouse is actually the first, probably the first actually even machine interface for the PC, right? And there's a bunch of things that I tried, people try to change it. And you talk about value. And on the flip side, I talk about, uh, um, let's say, uh, habits, getting, you are used to that. And I, in some times when people talk, yes, but the touch screen, I mean, for me, the touch screen is a glorified button because the information is co-localized. That what is changes is that you can program the co-localization. But at the end of the day, it's a button. And people were, in my perspective, were easy to adopt it because that's a button. They know, they see a button, they click a button or they make a slider. And that's natural because they already know that. And how much do, and when we talk about haptics uh, companies, sometimes they, 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 they take this bracelet, for example, it's a completely new interaction paradigm. And, uh, and sometimes I say to myself, yes, but this comes to fruition, me, that I cannot use that, I need to die. 
because I need you need to pass the whole generation and maybe 40, 50 years for these things to come to fruition. So yeah. how do you think that this is a risk for this adoption? Because the control and the control of localized optics that I cannot absolutely understand. I would love to bring these things to market. There is also a production constraint. Is it sturdy enough? There's a bunch of things to take into consideration. But how much do you think this uh, friction of adopting a different types of interaction interface could be a showstopper for haptics? I mean, I, 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 so I think it has been and continues to be a, a huge one, right? I mean, the reason dual shock lasted 15, 20 years was because people felt it was good enough and like they didn't, they, they didn't get that there could be better experiences. So it is a huge issue to try to change uh, the way people interact. Um, I'm still going to go back to the value, right? I, I think um, take the, the game controller again, like people that tried that original demo with the full triggers and the full effect, they walked away and said, I need to have that. So a bit of a incremental difference because they're still using the same controller. Now completely changing the paradigm, as you said, it, I, I think it's going to be tricky. I personally think controllers are not going to go away until they figure out a way that someone with their hands can compete with a controller, right? With a handheld. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> Uh, good for certain companies. That's a lot of peripherals. So that, that's for sure. But uh, but it's true, right? Now that said, I still think there are some interesting things about swiping and and moving. And you know, you, you mentioned the mouse. The mouse really is uh, you know a macro movement. Uh, we developed some internal things that never saw the light of day. But you know, just using swipe gestures on the mouse. So imagine sword fighting games where you have one finger up and you're you know, you're moving around or you're blocking or they're become more interactive. I think there's a learning curve there, but I think it makes the game so much richer. Like this is one of the things that I really dislike about mobile games. You know, most of them are two button on off pressing games, right? So the, like your ability to influence the game is is poor. The mouse is, is, is richer because you're moving around. And I think if you can come up with ways that allow the user to have more agency or more ability to control things in the game, you're going to get there. Now, contrast that to full hand operation. That's a lot of stuff, right? Like, uh, I don't remember the game that came out in VR, uh, but basically it was a magic game and, you know, you could grab objects and shape them into things and, and throw. like that. That's a great idea. I don't think I would do it eight hours a day because, again, you still want to move around and do things. But there are instances where I think these new things will come into play. And then your timeline, I mean, this has always been a, a topic at immersion or even, you know, among my colleagues in, in the haptic spaces. There's no doubt in our mind that haptic, you know, interfaces, haptics is going to succeed. It's just, is it 10 years? Is it 50 years? Is it 100 years? And, you know, our job is to make it, not make it 100 years, try to pull, pull that thing back. But, you know, we only have five senses. It's so clear that to have the full holodeck experience you, you, that you can almost get in VR is you need the haptic aspect. Uh, it, it's just a question of of how much time this is going to take, whether we'll all be alive to see it or not. I don't know. Uh, thanks. That's inspiring. And I have a follow-up question here is, you mentioned that uh, you'll be looking to expand the interac interaction capabilities of the current interfaces due to different input. Somehow, I think, given the fact of the work in artificial intelligence right now, if uh, I, we would not go on the other way around because software is cheap, hardware is hard, right? And habits are difficult to change. If it won't be that the 
input recognition mechanism would become so much more smarter that would adapt your input to the action or at least the capabilities that the software has based on recognition on patterns, something like that, that you, you won't need to have different input, but just the input, you know, mach recognition machine that today it's actually, it's one-to-one, -one, right? When you're playing an FPS, every input is what you want, exactly what you want. Okay. Uh, but maybe it would become smarter or at least way work in a different way or non-linear way so that they can actually expand your agency without the need to expand the number of inputs, which is terrible for peripheral making companies yeah. because we cannot sell shit. But <laughs> the flip side, but, I, I sometimes I ask my fans, that is not what's probably going to happen. Well, I'll go back to the complexity though. Like, so uh, again, if, if um, going back to mobile, right? Like literally a lot of these racing games are on off and you, you only have these two inputs. Um, there's been some tennis games where, okay, now the length of your duration actually impacts how much backswing you have. And, and already these games for me, as someone who likes more, uh, challenging games, it, it's like, now I can do more, I have more control. Right. And I, I just think that that trend will continue. So there will be a, a, and there are, right. There are a whole facet of people who love mobile games and, um, mobile gamers are different from, I'm going to call more hardcore gamers. Because I, I think the hardcore gamers like to have that influence and that impact. Like if I can just do a run through through a game by using your method, let's say I just have to put my finger on the touchpad and I do run through the game, that's so less like fulfilling for me than being challenged and going, okay, there's some skill, dexterous skill or mental skill I need to apply to this game to beat it. And, and that's where I think it also goes to the interface. If the interface is too simple, well, then I, I can't have that control. Kind of got sidewalked on the in input part, but for sure this also matters for the output, right? So the information I'm getting back and and I think that's another key to the future of haptics is how much information transfer can we can we really get from it? I, I don't think it's been studied enough. Uh, you know, there's some few people who have done a few longitudinal studies, but I, I do think once the actuator technology gets better, we do have spatial kind of multiple pinpoints, wide range. I think people are going to be using this in completely different ways. And again, might be 20 years, might be 10 years. I don't know. Thank you, Danny. Totally agree. So as a last question in uh, the future of Haptic section, uh, we want to ask you something about AI. It's everywhere. You open your LinkedIn and it's used in all different types of industries and applications. Can you tell us something about your vision and impacts of AI on Haptics? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, certainly the, what's happening already is, is on the content side, uh, because that's also been a, been a, a challenging aspect of, of haptics is you can't just build a device and the designers will come. You really do need to add content. Uh, I mean, as Eric knows, this is, uh, adding, taking a new device and getting the old content to work with the new device. If there's some automatic way to do that, you know, that's fantastic other than having hundreds of people code. So I clearly think on the design chain, AI has has a huge impact. Um, with respect to to you know the creation of haptic effects, I'm curious to what AI could do there. Uh, I, I'm not sure what's there. Uh, you get a company like Dbox though that you know has implemented their technology in hundreds of hours of of movies. What happens if we train something on that and and see what they what they develop? I, I think could be interesting. Um, but it's mostly on the content side that I, I see the play. All right. So in the end, uh, long story short, AI will play the ukulele. 
keep the metaphor up. <laughs> well, hopefully it's a 12 string guitar, but yes, <laughs> hopefully that makes the market. But it... yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Danny. What amazing. Sorry, Ashley, to you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah, I think we're all just like really excited and probably have a million more questions that we could ask. But unfortunately, we have reached the end of um this Haptos Club podcast. Um you've already kind of uh agreed to join us again um in the future, which I appreciate inadvertently. Um so thank you so much, Danny, for that. It's just been an amazing conversation. I think, you know, the reason why we're here, the reason why we all come together at the Haptics Club is because we see that there are like problems, challenges, opportunities in this in the industry across all different facets. Um, and we really touched upon some of those really critical things in this conversation. So hopefully the person listening is inspired, is um, scratching their chin at um, problems they could possibly solve based on their own understanding, whether they're new to haptics or they've been in the industry um, as long as Danny Um so thanks, Danny, for all that um, fantastic uh, conversation. For anyone who is listening, of course, you can head to thehapticsclub.com and check out, of course, like our LinkedIn and our Twitter to see what's happening next, who our next guests are. We've got um, the CEO of Contact CI coming up next, so be sure to check that out, RSVP. Our blog is live, um, so check out that on our website. And, of course, if you want like a swag shirt like me or a mug, hat, um, thehapticsclub.com slash shop is up and running. This is really cozy. It's cold here right now and I'm warm. So um, you'll be in good hands and look super swag um, if you go ahead and do that. But of course, you can catch the next episode. It's on YouTube. We're on every major podcast platform, Spotify, Apple, you know it. But that's that's it for us today. We are so grateful that you took the time to be with us and that we, can, we have the opportunity to um, hang out with people like Danny who have a wealth of knowledge that um, everyone just needs to needs to listen to. Um, so thanks so much, Danny, for taking the time. And that's it for the Haptics Club podcast. Thank you.